Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 20. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he was raised, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning. It is a joy and an honor to be here at Christ Presbyterian Church Cool Springs. I'm so thankful for this congregation, so thankful for your pastor and his friendship. Uh, he did not mention that at this um, Baptist Anglican and, and Presbyterian walk into a monkey bar, this was in children's chairs over in the uh, Christ Pres uh, Old Hickory location uh, with crayons, and we were sitting there coloring while we were talking to each other about issues of theology in these little uh, chairs. I was the only one who was seated comfortably uh, there. <laughs> But yes, that was a, a, a definitive moment in my life. Uh, several years ago, uh, there was an image that went viral uh, all over the world uh, of a, a young woman in Brazil who had taken a picture of her very devout Catholic great-grandmother's uh, St. Anthony uh, statue that she would uh, pray to all of the time. Uh, in a little brown robe, and her grandmother would, would pray to this uh, statue, until the granddaughter, the great-granddaughter, noticed that St. Anthony had pointy ears. And she thought, this is an interesting choice in the design of this statue. And so she started uh, looking into it and Googling around and found out that this actually was a Lord of the Rings action figure <laughs> of Elrond Rivendell, the elf lord not a St. Anthony uh, figurine at all. Had to explain that to great-grandma. Now, most of us were not Catholic. We don't uh, have the same sort of piety of uh, praying through uh, and to a statue and to a saint. But all of us can identify with that sort of moment and that, that kind of feeling where we start to wonder is everything that I'm praying about, is all of the sort of action that I'm taking uh, every week when I'm coming to my Bible, when I'm gathering together with the church, when I'm trusting in the Lord, is that connecting with anything real or is this somehow just all in my imagination and all in my hopes Am I just sort of projecting everything onto an action figure, a toy of my own imagination, or is this in fact something real? Now, if you've never experienced a moment like that, typically people do when they go through some sort of a time of crisis. 
Maybe they have a spouse who walks out. Or maybe they have an unexpected uh, medical diagnosis. Or maybe there was a, a minister that really meant a lot to them who falls uh, morally in some way. If you haven't been through that kind of crisis, you probably will. And it's deeply, deeply rattling at the moment when you start to say how much of this is just my imagination and how much of this actually is real. For some people, that can end up in a kind of cynicism. What you start to do is just to start to assume that nothing is real, that, that everything is an act, that everything is just a means to an end that people are constructing. And you start to have a really, really dark view of the world. You start second-guessing everybody else's motives. What are they really doing here? What are they really saying here? And sooner or later, you start second-guessing all your own motives. And it can lead you into this sort of cycle of cynicism. Now, this is part of what the Apostle Paul is addressing in that scripture that we just had read to us some moments ago. Question is, when we gather together on the Lord's Day, confessing Jesus Christ is alive, is that in fact the case? And if it is, what does that matter? And the reason that Paul is, is writing this in this letter that's addressing all of these problems and all of these crises and all of these divisions taking place in Corinth, this really, really troubled but bustling seaport city, he's addressing these questions of confusion. And one aspect of confusion is the fact that apparently there were people within the congregation saying there would not be a resurrection of the dead. That death was the end point, at least uh, as it came to the body. Now, this was, this was something that was confusing all over the place. If you just look at the New Testament, you're going to have confusion constantly over resurrection in multiple different ways. So in some places in the New Testament, what they're having to address is whether or not there would be a resurrection at all. Uh, Jesus is dealing with this with the Sadducees, uh, for instance, and they're trying to make it sound ridiculous. You've got a woman who marries a man, he dies. She marries another man, he dies. She marries another man, he dies. At the resurrection, will she have seven zombie husbands? You know, they're, they're trying to make this sound uh, absurd. Then you're going to have other times in the New Testament where the confusion is people telling them the resurrection's already happened and you've missed out on it. And in this case, it seems that the, the question that's being addressed is not whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead, but whether or not you would be and whether or not your loved ones would be. And this was creating a great deal of confusion. Now, the reason that this is confusing for people. The reason that this becomes a, a, a kind of a controversy in so multiple different ways is because we don't experience resurrection in our normal lives. There will often be people who will come in and say, well, we know that the Bible isn't true 
because we know that virgins don't get pregnant and we know that dead people don't come back to life and these things are all just sort of legendary stories. As though these are things that we recently discovered. There's a reason why when Mary says to Joseph she's pregnant, his response is not, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. His response is to assume that she's been unfaithful to him. Why? Because he knows how people get pregnant. That did not become discovered uh, sometime after Einstein. And when there were funerals, people did not expect the body to get back up. People knew that death was death and that there wasn't a, a second act to that. So resurrection was itself always a startling and unusual and disruptive kind of an idea and was very, very hard to believe. So when people are coming through and saying, well, the dead are not going to be raised, this seemed to be really credible to people. So Paul writes and says, here's what you need to understand. If that is true, that the dead are not raised, then a couple of things are the case. Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Both of those two things are the case. So there are a number of issues here I want us to look at this morning that Paul addresses. The first one is a question of truth. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then we meaning the apostles, those who are bearing witness to the resurrection, we are found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're misrepresenting God. Now that's, again, not an unusual situation where people will use authority for uh, some sort of malicious end or as a, a means to an end. Uh, there are all sorts of people who will do that. All sorts of people will do that with religion. Caesar would do that with religion. Take the gods that people worship, project it onto him, get people to, to think that when they're obeying him, they're obeying the gods. People do that all the time. Paul says, if we are testifying to something that isn't true, which is that Jesus was raised from the dead, then we are using that authority in a deceptive way in order to control you. So you have to answer the question whether or not that is the case. Because it's not just a matter of, oh, well, well we have some differences here. You believe that somebody's been raised from the dead and we will be too. We believe that he wasn't. Eh, we'll, we'll all just find out who's right eventually. No, 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 no. This means that if we are testifying something different here, the entire thing falls apart because the entire thing is based upon that testimony. Even in a church, remember in this church at Corinth, they are fighting with each other all the time. And part of the reason that they're fighting with each other all the time is over these fragmentations and these uh, divisions. Uh, Russ mentioned uh, social media and some of the issues that we have happening with social media and fragmenting uh, people apart. And, and Jonathan Haidt 
uh, in, that, uh, in that interview was talking about a Tower of Babel that takes place where people are not even able to communicate with each other anymore. That's heightened, but that's not new. You see that happening here in the Corinthian church where people are splitting up into, I'm with Paul, I'm with James, I'm with Apollos, I'm with other people. Paul's coming in and saying, in this case, it really doesn't even matter if you're a Paul guy or a James guy or a Peter guy. It doesn't matter because all of us are found to be liars. Means the the Easter women were lying when they came back from the tomb and said he's not there. That all of these witnesses are lying when they say we saw him. And we give you the addresses where you can go to the people who saw them, many of them still alive. He says, if that's the case, if you don't believe us in telling you the truth about that, then don't listen to me now. We have nothing to to say to you. Here's why this is important. The resurrection from the dead is not some sort of a useful idea. There are all kinds of useful ideas that people have that are what it takes to be part of a tribe or what it takes to be part of a group or what it takes to be part of a a folk religion, sorts of things that you you don't really believe but you feel like you've got to say. You see that a lot of funerals. There'll be people who will say, well, you know, at least he's he's with Jesus now. She's not suffering now. For people who don't believe anything but who don't know what else to say to people who are suffering. That's a useful truth to them. The resurrection is not like that because if the dead are not raised, if that is not a truthful concept, then it is not useful at all. It means you are deceived. It's a question of truth. But then secondly, he raises here a question of judgment. And what he's really getting at here is exactly what we just did together when we confessed sin and when we were pronounced to be forgiven of sin. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And it's really important the way that Paul words that because it's the way that the the Bible almost always words it which is this passive sense of Jesus being raised from the dead. Very, very rarely in the Bible is there the language of Jesus rose from the dead. If you write something in a document and you put it in the passive voice, they're often going to come in and tell you to put it in the active voice. Sounds stronger when you do the the autocorrect on it. This is intentionally in the passive voice. God raised Jesus from the dead. Why? Because people understood what God had revealed before, which is that at the resurrection from the dead, God would show you who his people are. These are the people who come back to life. These are the people who have his spirit upon them. I will be their God and they will be my people. At the resurrection of Jesus, 
what happens is exactly what Paul is arguing in the book of Romans. The law comes in and says, those who are lawbreakers, the wages of that lawbreaking is death. And so you go through and you show who are the lawbreakers. All of the nations are lawbreakers. They're, they're operating against the law that is written on their conscience. All of the people of God are found to be lawbreakers. There is none who is righteous, no, not one. So everyone is given over to death, except for this one person. God raised him from the dead and declared him to be the son of God with power. He's the pioneer of this new creation. He's the representative here. And so what Jesus is doing in being raised from the dead is really, really similar to what he's doing when he goes to the Jordan River and asks to be baptized. And John is really confused and says, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know why you're asking me to baptize you. He knows what this means. It means that people are coming and saying, God is right to judge us and we are repenting. Jesus, you don't have anything to repent of. God is not judging you. But Jesus is identifying himself with you. In the same way that in death, he identifies himself with you. My little cousin has ended up somehow all over the news uh, recently because she was a referee for a softball game and some uh, mom in the audience got upset with one of the calls that she made and punched her. She had a black eye and uh, the mom ended up being arrested. And, you know, I couldn't help but kind of laugh when I saw the mugshot after I knew that my cousin was all right because the mother who had been arrested is wearing a t-shirt that says mother of the year. <laughs> and and you, you realize either she just happened to be wearing a mother of the year shirt or she just said, I'm going to communicate one more time. I'm in the right here. But a, a mugshot is usually for most people kind of a humiliating experience. Uh, there's, there's almost no one who says, you know, I just, I go into the store and I see the mug shots that are up of people who have stolen from that store. I just wish I could be on that wall. You, you don't do that. You say, that, that's a bad situation. I don't want to be a part of. You don't want to be identified with people in baptism who are saying, you are right that we are snakes fleeing from the wrath to come. You do not want to be those people who are identifying themselves with people who are dead because every person who dies, you know something about them. That person is a sinner against God. Why would you want to be identified with those people when you're not? Jesus does, though. He numbers himself with the transgressors, not because he has any sin, but because he loves you who do, loves me, who does. And so what Paul is saying here is, if the dead are not raised, 
That means that Jesus is not raised. That means that you don't have a connection with Christ. And if you are not connected with Christ, then that means that you are still in your sins. You are not forgiven of your sins. So nothing matters. Everything's hope. And what that leads to when you come to that conclusion is either you conclude that means I'm just going to sin more because what else can I do? Or it means you're going to be in a place of total despair. You don't know how it is to get to forgiveness, to a resolution of the sins that you know that you are committing. Flannery O'Connor, the novelist, Uh, talked about this problem uh, many years ago when she says that she had trouble understanding how when she's confessing her sin, whether or not she's really sincere in her confession, how does she know that she's actually been uh, forgiven of her sin? And she wrote to someone and saying, you start to wonder if your confessions of sin have been adequate and if you're just compounding sin on sin on sin because you didn't Uh, you didn't uh, confess the right way the first time. She says this probably all comes from faulty training and being taught by people to measure your sins like a slide rule, and it drives some folks nuts and some folks to the Baptists. I feel sure it will drive me nuts and not to the Baptists. (laughs) Now, she acts as if these are mutually exclusive categories, and I can tell you from personal experience they're not. But There is this sense that sort of transcends whatever kind of religious category that somebody might be in, where you start to think, if only I had some kind of a a marker where I can say, okay, I have been forgiven of sin and I know it because I have it written down and signed or because I had this experience where I felt completely forgiven. You know, everybody's looking for that in some way or the other. What the gospel says is that it's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith. So you're not measuring your your faith as though it, it were a Wi-Fi signal that's sort of connecting you. What you're measuring is whether or not Jesus is able to save, and you're looking to him. Paul's writing to this church that if you just read this whole letter together, it is a mess. It is a mess. You have people who are having to be corrected on almost every single point in their lives, and he addresses them as saints, as those who have a weak and faltering and wandering faith, but they are standing before God as saints because they are connected to Christ. And he is the one, if in fact God raised Jesus from the dead, then that means he's alive, and that means that he stands before God with his own life, and you are hidden in him. So it's not just that because Jesus is raised from the dead, you know that you will be raised from the dead. That's true, but it's more than that. 
if Jesus was raised from the dead and you are hidden in him by faith, you have already been raised from the dead in one sense. You are already seated in the heavenly places in one sense. Jesus is already praying for you and you have already been through judgment, which means that when your conscience starts to say to you and to accuse you and saying, don't you remember when you said, don't you remember when you did, don't you remember what a fraud and a hypocrite you are? The answer to that is not to find a way to argue with your conscience, to say, no, 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 what I really meant to do was this, or really wasn't as bad as so-and-so, is to say, you're exactly right, and I have already been to hell. I have already been under the judgment of God at the cross, and I am already raised from the dead in Christ so that God says what he thinks about me in Jesus, which is come forward, enter into the joy of your rest. That is true of you if you're in Christ. And then he, he, he closes with a final idea here, and that's the question of hope. He says, and what about those who have fallen asleep? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then those who have fallen asleep, he says, are simply dead. Now, that language of sleep is important. And the reason it's important is because going to sleep is a really traumatic sort of experience if you actually look at it. I mean, every single one of us, every night, we go into a kind of unconscious state, into sort of a, a, a little coma. None of us panic about that. None of us start to become alarmed when we start to find ourselves becoming sleepy because it happens every night and because we know that in the morning we're going to wake up. And we're going to, it's going to happen every single day. The language here of sleep is to say this is not a permanent situation. These are people who are going to be awakened. Jesus would say this often and would get laughed at. Our friend Lazarus is asleep. I go to wake him up. People are like, he doesn't know what, we doesn't know what's happened. The guy's dead. The, this little girl, she's asleep. She's not dead. Oh, he doesn't know what's happening. She's dead. He knows exactly what's happening. Sleep is not permanent. If there is no resurrection from the dead, though, Paul says, that means that all of the people that we love are simply gone, and we know that not to be the case. So Paul says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ has not been raised, then we are of, most, of all people to be most pitied. Someone said to me, just very recently, and I've heard it said many, many times. Even if the gospel turns out to be not true, even if Jesus isn't actually raised from the dead, I still would want to be a Christian because it's the best and most joyful way to live. Really? 
You can't translate that into Sudanese. If your confession of faith in Jesus means that you are going to be arrested and literally crucified, that is not the best way to live. If in the first century, you are going to be, by following Christ, cutting yourself off from your entire family, your entire community, your entire ability to be able to find a place in the social system and to make a living, that is not the best way to live. And the Bible never suggests that being a Christian is a good and pleasant way to live if it's not true. As a matter of fact, the Bible says the opposite is the case. If Christ is not raised, then eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. Everything is just coming to an end. So have your bucket list of all of the sort of sensate reactions that you can have. But what you're going to find out is what Ecclesiastes says, that even those start to lose their meaning if what you're living in is a meaningless universe. You can never have enough pleasure. You can never have enough riches. You can never have enough knowledge. You can never have enough relationship. You can never have enough fame. You can never have enough wealth. All of that starts to become meaningless. There is a hunger in every single person for a universe to actually have meaning. And Paul says, I'm telling you, the reason you have that hunger is because it is true. But in fact, he says, Christ has been raised the first fruits, the beginning. What God did with Jesus is the beginning of what he will do with everyone who belongs to Christ. This is the beginning. So when we hear that message that says, come follow me, the people who have borne witness to you because people have borne witness to them. People had borne witness to them going all the way back to the women who came back to the disciples and said, he's not there. We've seen him, and he's walking around. That is the beginning of something that God is doing with you. So when you stand here together with the people of God and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, you're not saying words to a dead action figure. You're not speaking to a toy of your own imagination. You're speaking to someone who is alive, who is standing in front of the throne of the Father right now with his own shed blood and his own ongoing life and praying for you by name. And you will one day fall asleep as he did and you will one day be awakened. So the importance of that is to be able in a world of death and lack of meaning to look to him to see your own present, your own past, your own future, and to say, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those in this room who 
are still in their sins because they're not joined to the resurrected, resurrected Christ. Lord, if that's the case for, for anyone in this room, would you cause them to see the invitation that is given to them to follow him? And Lord, I pray for those who are followers of Jesus in this room, but who are weighted down, some of them with guilt, some of them with fear, some of them with anxiety. Lord, would you, would you give us a sense of our lives as not being the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next 50 years, but the next trillion years because we've been resurrected with Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.